Hey everyone, one quick update I want to make with this episode uh, before it gets started is uh, this episode is with Deacon John Paul and with uh, Seminarian Andrew. Um, however, by the time we release this episode, um, already as I'm recording this right now, uh, Deacon John Paul is no longer Deacon John Paul because he is now Father John Paul. So if there's a little bit of discrepancy, wait, wait a minute, is he a priest? Is he not? Uh, when we recorded, he was still a deacon, and he has now subsequently become ordained into the presbyterate. So pray for him, pray for Andrew, pray for all our seminarians and all our priests. Enjoy. I doubt if there is any problem, social, political, or economic, that would not melt away before the fire of such a spiritual undertaking. and liquor podcast where society is always decadent because it's made of nothing but matter well i don't know maybe there's a spirit involved in the world i don't know whatever um i'm not gonna go into those theological realms i'm joined by two seminarians who can tell me where i've gotten wrong because my mind at this point is nothing but ash and dust from traveling and shooting podcast episodes ad nauseum i'm just at the end of my tether so we're just gonna let we're just gonna let the, the clerics or would-be clerics one cleric, one would-be cleric, uh, take take the reins on on that one. But I'm joined as always by Andrew, who's made his triumphal return uh, to the podcast, joining us up again, and also with Deacon J P, or John Paul. Um, he's going to be ordained a priest uh, very soon, like within ten days or something, uh, yep. which is really cool. So pray for him uh, and pray for the rest of us, and um, especially also for Michael because he's not feeling well, so he's not with us today. Yep. Oh, well, and I'm also joined as always by Peter, who's who's hanging out. Peter, how's it going? How are you? It's going good, Thomas. How are you? It's good. Yeah. Um, so um, we have an interesting conversation here that Andrew brought up to me when I was talking to him um, that uh, Deacon John Paul has brought up discussing Vatican II, the uh, concept of implementation, uh, whether it's been implemented, whether it's not been implemented, the whole whole edifice of it what do we deal with it how do we deal with it a lot of crazy things have happened after the council how do we just conceptualize and deal with the whole council um and everything that's happened since then so andrew um i guess how does this how do these conversations start in seminary you guys just sitting around being like well if i was pope let me tell you how, <laughs> let me tell you here <laughs> like, well I, I'm, not, I'm i'm a humble person if i was just a bishop this is what i would <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean i mean oh, conversations in the seminary only start with if i was pope if i'm telling the story right <laughs> everybody else everybody else in the seminary like has has at least some modicum of humility and so they recognize like god willing when i'm like people like the phrase in the seminary like god willing when i'm a priest right, With right. Me, it's like well when i am <laughs> and when i have been elevated by the grace of god to the bishop uh bishopric then eventually i'm going to be pope and i'm going to just lay down the law right um the Holy Office will resume its lawful title, <laughs> lawful place. Yeah. <laughs> like so, there's like apostles, there's like this cool Clement guy. There's like one or two okay bishops in the middle, of it, and this just been trash until I yeah. come. Right, bishop. right. Yeah. No, so just so no. Uh, <laughs> your bishop is pretty cool. I got to toss that out. <laughs> this is no, oh, dude, this is very awesome. cool. I listen to his podcast. It's a, it's like very relaxing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very good podcast. Relaxing, just like there's a timbre yeah. to the voice. And it's just yes. um, it's that Delco accent. He's got that Delco accent from outside. I never could pin that what accent that was. It was always just, but it's always yeah. Just it's weird. Delaware County. That's Delaware County. And, oh, really? Uh, he's uh, he's no, he's a boss. Uh, our bishop is a boss. Um, yeah. And uh, literally our boss. Yeah. Literally our boss. Actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> so true. Um, no, so I mean, like to get back to the question that you asked me ten minutes ago, and I segued for my own amusement. Um, the, the I think conversations like this happen. They actually come up pretty naturally in the seminary because I think that all of us we're kind of looking at the church in which we hope to be ordained. Right. And we're looking at the church in which we're really hoping to uh, work the vineyard of the Lord and the state it's in. And, and I think we, we have a lot of really awesome conversations with the priests at the seminary, but also with each other about what do we think is going right in the church? What do we think is going wrong in the church? Um, and a lot of it, um, you know, can kind of be spinning our tires and like, kind of, you know, like just kind of just talking for the sake of talking, talking for the sake of getting frustration out. Um, but some of it can be really productive and really good. And so one of the conversations I had in seminary that I feel like really was like changed a lot in my perspective was I've multiple conversations I've had about the second Vatican council with John Paul, um, not always with John Paul alone, but usually with other, with sometimes with other people. Um, but I, I really, um, John Paul, I think had a really good, uh, just has a lot of really good thoughts on, on the council and especially what is actually a kind of a neat place to actually start the conversation. I think if you want to pick up after me, John Paul is um, one of the things that you changed in my view period was what is, what does the word implementation mean? Like, what do we mean when we say the council being implemented or not being implemented? Um, Because I think I always thought of that very much as a top down thing. And I think that on some level that's true. So I wasn't totally wrong, but I think you had a really, I think more holistic approach um that i found really really helpful and actually gave a lot of hope so i mean if we want to pick up right there that's 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 where yeah. the conversation gets interesting yeah it was funny when uh you know when andrew said hey you know there's a podcast that maybe we should jump on with these conversations and i was like conversations about what he's like about vatican too and i was like well i got like kind of a better person to be talking about Vatican II with. So my uncle is a priest in our diocese, Father John Heisler. Oh, cool. And he has Dynasty. taught classes on, you know, Vatican II for, uh, gosh, well well over 10 years. Um, he was at uh, the Josephinum Seminary in Columbus, Ohio for over 10 years. Uh, I think he I think he taught the class as well when he was chaplain at Christendom College yeah. before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just in some conversations that I've had been blessed to have with him. It, that's really what, um, what helped me a great deal. And then during lockdown, um, we spent a couple months locked away in, in rectories, which was great because we had the, um, the sacraments there. Um, but it was also like everyone else, we were just about as cooped up as everyone else. And so one of the things that he was doing was um, using you know, this medium, he was using Zoom to reach his parishioners and teach a class. And he was teaching a class on Vatican II. And so I, t- I took some of the materials that he had given, just started to read some of them. And yeah, it was, it was really amazed at the materials that he had. And the, the thing that came up that was, uh, yeah, the, I guess the most interesting to me, I, I didn't make it even through half of um, his, his, his course notes. Um, but was a, a 2005, um, what would it be called? Like, a, not talk, but a presentation, an address, a 2005 address to the Curia uh, by then, um, you know, Pope Benedict XVI, now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. And um, it was amazing because that's, yeah, it's the year that he was elected. And he gives this address to the Curia at the end of the year. It's a Christmas address. And so he's got several things from just kind of over the course of the year, things that he wants to highlight. But 
the extent to which he discusses the fact that they are celebrating then the 40th anniversary of the closing of Vatican II. Um, and he gives um, like pastoral or interpretive guidance to um, like how to, through what hermeneutic to be reading the documents of the council. And that was shocking to me. I'm like, this is 2005. So <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, I, you know, everyone talks about the implementation of the council or the things that followed after the council, but we never consider ourselves as like part of that. You know, we, we think about like the seventies, especially, you know what I mean? But like 2005 churches and stuff. Yeah. That's late. 2005 is late. And so that's really what kind of started to work in my mind. And so I was talking to my uncle about it and it's amazing to me how much we've lost, um, uh, reading the documents of the council, whenever you, you know, especially cause a lot of times discussions about Vatican council too, can just be very, um, polemical. Um, and oftentimes I find that we're not even discussing documents. Mm-hmm. We're discussing things that happen in the church and a timeline that is very, very important. But as a part of that timeline, it's actually, you know, that, that actually goes more to the point of if, if in 2005, you know, the Holy Father, who's being preceded by two popes who both will go on to be canonized saints, you know, um, uh, fathers of the council. And then, you know, um, the one who proceeds for like what is it like or um, comes out for like 27 years. I don't know how long Trump on the second papacy was. Thinking. But I mean. He's dealing, he's dealing with all of that, and yet he still finds it important to speak about uh, through what lens we are um, yeah, digesting and teaching and implementing um, the council. So that was just, yeah, mm-hmm. just a, um, yeah, it was a real shock to me. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the big things that came out to, stick, sticks out to me is the idea that we are part of the implementation of the council, right? The laity, the clergy, uh, every level of the church, right? Every level of the church is responsible for the implementation of the council. The church does something as a whole, right? Um, and I think that that's something that I just had not thought about before in that way. And so I think that was actually a really, that was a really fruitful thing for me, um, right? In the same way that the church, ha- the entire church has the census fidelium, right? Or the entire church is, it has the charism of infallibility, right? Like there's these different things that the church has that like, it doesn't, so it doesn't make sense to kind of like artificially say, well, in this one instance, it's the job of like just the clergy, just the clergy responsible to make sure that this happens. Like anything beyond the sacraments, like the sacraments is the realm of the clergy, uh, but which is for the sake of the lady, obviously. But when it comes to the entirety of the church, implementing something like accounts, which affects the entirety of the church. I think it gives a lot of hope to say, we're all part of that. We're all part of living the living, not just like reading, but living the hermeneutic of continuity, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is, is the only thing that makes sense. Cool. Can we take just one step back um, real quick? Cause we're talking about implementation. I really want to dive. We can dive into that a lot, but um, what does it mean to actually implement um, the council? So the Council, Second Vatican Council, someone's going to have to correct me on the dates. It's like, what is it, about 62, 1962 or so, 64 to about 71 or 70 or something? 
No, no, it's sixty-two to sixty-five. Okay, now I, I look. I'm thinking in Trent terms or something, right? Where it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it lasted a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so that's under the pontificate of uh, Pope Saint John twenty-third. No, twenty-third. Yes, correct. and then all the sixth. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 That's it. Those are our terms. Um, and obviously, right when we talk about implementing the council and us all implementing the council, um, there's obviously the stereotypes that get you know tossed around with it, where it's like, oh, so we, it means we destroy beautiful churches and do clown masses and guitars everywhere. Um, so I guess for you guys, uh, both as studying to be priests, one of you, God willing, um, that nothing happens in ten days, uh, will become a priest. <laughs> what is what is that? What does that mean? Can we like define more like? the spirit of Vatican II, not in yeah. a negative way, but like in the positive, like what we're supposed to take out of it as Catholics. And then kind of like on the second branch of that question tree, um, how then do we kind of like implement it? So first I think we need to define a little bit, like what are we actually implementing and what should we as good faithful Catholics um, be looking for in living out the spirit of Vatican II, not again, in a crazy way. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I was like, I'm, I'm really happy you said that because it was like right before I was thinking like, I, I actually don't know that implement is even like the best verb. I can't think of like what a good verb would be, but I, right. I don't, I don't know that that would be it. Um, uh, so wh while grappling around for maybe um, uh, a better word, or, or I could even look at his address and see if, um, uh, you know, uh, see what Pope Benedict used um I think for starters, like just to just just for starters, I think digesting the documents of the council um, in a spirit of prayer is the beginning. And so as far as implementation goes, if we're going to keep using that word <laughs> until, like, um, until until someone else thinks of a better one in the until, podcast, until, we'll yeah. just run with it. <laughs> um, you know, before that, I think each to like digest those documents um, themselves, um, read them and, uh, and, and, you know, as, as best as possible, try to avoid the spirit of suspicion, which mm -hmm. um, is really, yeah, uh, prevalent in, in reading documents of Vatican II by a lot of people. Um, and, and just, yeah, in a real spirit of openness and trust and, um, and, and it, you know, if not that, at least curiosity um, to, to read the documents themselves. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's good that a lot of, you know, although there are some debates, especially, um, I think Dignitatis Humanae is probably um, one of the, yeah, one of the more disputed, like, or there'll be more debates about certain documents than others. Like, honestly, we don't celebrate them enough. Um, mm -hmm. And, and part of that is because we don't read them. We don't understand them. We don't know what's in them. And um, yeah, so I think that's for starters. Like if someone wanted, was like, hey, I'm on board, like how would we do that? I'd be like, well, we just read the documents <laughs> first, you know, mm -hmm. if you have anything to add there. Just kind of on the, you know, the continuity side of things, I, I think it would be good to maybe kind of touch on why is it that councils like Trent or any of these other big time councils didn't and correct me if I'm wrong, but there didn't seem to be decades worth of dissent among people within the church widespread. And so what happened in the quote unquote implementation of those councils that is different in the Vatican II era? 
Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I mean, there's there's so just just a slight slight nuance, I think, or um, is that there is there is dissent uh, uh, from the French in Trent, right? Sure. Sure. Don't like Trent for a while. It, it, and it is decades, actually is decades before the French are fully brought on board because they're suspicious of uh, the Italians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that it's uh, so I think that one of the things I think the big thing with with Vatican II is not so much. I don't think it's so much that there's not the same kind of problem, not the same challenge with implementation that you had uh, with other councils, um, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's certain councils that cause schism, right? Like Nicaea. We had schism with the Arians at Nicaea, right? Sure. We had schism with the Nestorians at Ephesus, right? Like right. we have, so there's certain places where like people just refuse to go along with what the church has said and they broke off, right? So right. you don't have that quite the same way at Vatican II. The thing I think that really does, that, that there's, that there's two things um, I think that really, and uh, John Ball can kind of jump in if he thinks, disagrees with this, but I think that from my perspective, there's two things that really caused the problem in the post-Vatican two years. One of them is um, the, the, the form of the mass changed a lot. Mm. Um, uh, the the 19, um, 1969-1970 missile is very different from the 1965 missile, which was kind of the stopgap, right? right? You have the extraordinary form of the mass, uh, is translated into the vernacular largely um, in the 1965 missile. Um, and then um, I think the big thing, it's, it, it, it's not, I don't think you, it's the, the real tension doesn't seem to emerge until you have actually the release, not so much of the 65 missile, um, which in some ways is the mass of the Second Vatican Council in many ways. Sacrosanum Concilium, I think, is much, is, I think the 1965 missile probably represents more, uh, there could be debate on this, but I think it probably represents more the 1965 missile than the 1969-70 missile. Okay. Um, so I think that that was a really big thing that was very jarring for people. Um, and Pope Benedict talked about, talks about that in his Spirit of the Liturgy, um, that, that, that this was a really jarring experience for Catholics. Um, and the second thing is, I think, is the widespread um, abuse that quickly, be, that quickly happened, right? Things like clown masses, right? Things like uh, people dressing up in all kinds of crazy things and saying mass. And I think that um, that, that f- for my money, is more product of the 70s um, uh, and, and things like that than the council itself. But So I think that's so, probably the reason why you have so much widespread tension following the council and so many Catholics who are so angry is because right. mass changes a lot, and then there does seem to be some widespread abuse. So would it be fair to say that the abuse mm-hmm. – and the misinterpretation of the Vatican, of the Second Vatican Council that happened in these certain corners mm-hmm. would be more akin to, let's say, the the heretics that came out of the other councils, because it's almost as if they took what the church was saying, and they almost did a lot of the opposite. They they and they kind of formed. And so, I'm not saying that they formed a formal heresy, but you can almost say that it wasn't. It should not have been the norm or it shouldn't be seen as the norm to do a clown mass. And it's not in conformity with the, the council. It's more akin to being anti-council. If you, if you're doing that, is that correct? I think, I think the, I think the heresy you're reaching for there, Peter, that you're not naming is modernism, which well, <laughs> is like, I, I guess I am trying to everything. <laughs> not. Yeah. yeah. I'm not trying to blame everything on modernism, but I, I guess that, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to say is that, is there a, like, if somebody, if kind of a lay Catholic is looking at priests or people who are doing things and blaming that the Vatican Council, but it would be more proper to say, no, they're actually in opposition to the council mm-hmm. and they're not following what the church has promulgated. 
mm-hmm. um, by doing these masses and stuff. Is, would that be more kind of a, I mean, not that you should like in, in bad judgment, like say, Oh, you're a heretic, but just kind of be like, well, don't know. You shouldn't look to that as being the teaching of the church. You should look to what the church actually said and then kind of bridge that gap. Right. Yeah. I mean, when Pope Benedict talks about this hermeneutic, uh, the discontinuity, mm-hmm. I was, I was surprised because he's discussing it in such a way that I thought that he meant people who have just kind of would throw the, you know, throw the documents out with the, right. with, with the clown masses and, and are just kind of, you know, just don't care for the council. And then, but he kind of goes on to, um, this from what I could tell more be chiding those who had discussed this quote unquote spirit of a council and, mm-hmm. and, and saying, well, you know, back then people were th- saying, well, these things wouldn't have gotten, but bo- you know, the votes that they needed or whatever. And so th- basically the documents are the way they are, but we know what the wink, wink real spirit of the council is. And so we're going to do a bunch of crazy stuff. That's, that's just not there. Right. Yeah. So it was interesting. I, I, I was really fascinated that I like thought he was saying one thing and, he, and, and he kind of was, but he, he's also totally talking to, you know, uh, people on the other extreme as well. Right. Uh, and, and, to, and back to your, um, your question you had just asked before then, I don't actually know historically um, how well we can measure. Um, yeah. How, how, how councils have been received before, like mm-hmm. the council of Jerusalem, you know? Right. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't need to do that. Like, right. how did that go over? Like, right. Have, <laughs> right. Probably a lot of people were pretty upset. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Like, yeah. You know, just this. And, and, and also the fact that, you know, if, for instance, in the council of Trent, it's like, well, who are, who's disagreeing? It's like, well, the people are the reason why we met, like Protestantism. Right. So you already have this huge group of Christians that disagree with whatever's going to be coming out of this council, because right. that's the reason that the council had to be called is so that we could have, you know, unity. Yep. That makes sense. So, I, so from what you guys are saying, like this post-council tension is nothing new. This is not something that's, you know, catastrophic for the church. We've gotten through this stuff before. And we just have to stick stick with the 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 uh, the knowledge and you know the leadership of the church, the true yeah. like more like I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not, okay. Gotcha. Like, I I don't know what I would base that off of. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. Cool. So I think it was something that. Um, uh, Dr. Um, Brendan McGuire, right, may rest in peace, uh, always mentioned, he mentioned one of my classes, I forget which one it was, um, but he mentioned that it was just kind of an offhand comment. I think we had gone off on some tangent or as a pre-class banter, whatever it was, the great things that made Christendom an amazing school, um, was he made the point that like the effects of Vatican II are still being played out and they won't be fully worked out historically in a historical setting, right? If you're going to go back as from a historian's viewpoint, like towards Trent or towards fourth uh, Lateran or something like that, we're still within the aftermath of the council even now, which I think is something that you, uh, John Paul mentioned where you're like, wait, it's 2005. Like, no, 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 no. It's like, yeah, it's 2005. We're still in the midst of, of the whole council 
playing out. Um, and I really think that's, a, that's when you try to take it, I won't say a historical viewpoint, but an elongated viewpoint of that these things very much do take time and they do take um, grace and, you know, movements here and there um, throughout the church for them to actually be implemented. But I guess, what would that implementation look like? Like if we're a true Vatican II church, what would, what would that church look like? Yeah. Like well, liturgically and then kind of like spiritually. It's kind of why I'm like, as I'm really yeah. curious, like what, because obviously being a good polemicist, um, I've never read any of the contra- um, Vatican II documents, but I know all about them. <laughs> I know, I know <laughs> everything. I know, I know Lumen Gentian means universalism. <laughs> whatever. No, that's the, that's the one of appropriate. Like that was a retrograde thing. I know everything, all the best things about Vatican II. <laughs> 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 no, um, but with some, I do have some interlock that I believe, you know, Michael Lofton comes to mind as a good interlocker of different Vatican II documents, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Taylor Marshall, not so much. Um, But I guess, what would a Vatican II church look like? Just like, you know, fully embracing the spirit of Vatican II, again, not like in a negative sense, but like Mm -hmm. in a positive way. Like, what would a church that is fully embraced, being embraced by the spirit and by the Holy spirit and by what the council fathers were trying to put forth, what would that look like? Yeah. So two things. One is I, I thought of a word, so I don't know if we're going to use the word. <laughs> what is the word? Is it a good but, word? Or? Um, well, because Pope Benedict, he's, he harps on the hermeneutic of uh, discontinuity, right? Mm-hmm. But then he talks about the hermeneutic of reform. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, you know, I'd be comfortable calling them reforms. Now, that makes people, some maybe, a um, little nervous because they don't want their church to be in need of reform. But um, that's why we have councils. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Footnote Chesterton. Footnote Chesterton from Orthodoxy. Boom. Cause, right. Because like, yeah. we do. Uh, yeah. Always in need of reform. So Always in need of reform. Yeah. And um, so, and then, and then as far as the, uh, what would it look like? I mean, I think like even personally, this, this only, you know, I only read Pope Bank's 2005 address that kind of sent my wheels spinning last spring. So it was during the lockdown. So it's just been this year of like, oh, I have no idea, but it like starts with me. And so the first thing I need to do is read these documents and digest them. And, um, and then a helpful thing in reading them through the hermeneutic of reform is reading them in light of, you know, why they were written. So, mm-hmm. and not wanting to do too much um, diving into the history of the council, even though that's really interesting and important. Um, but, but then, you, you know, I, I can end up falling into the same traps that others make afterwards of thinking I know what they really wanted to say rather than just reading what's been given to me. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm glad modernism came up because honestly, it's like, yeah, that's, that's why we met um, as a church. And that's why, um, it's why they had the council really. Um, And it's a, it's a pastoral council. It's, it's how do we, um, how do we have this, um, this gospel that's been given to us, this life in Christ? And how does that, how has that, you know, 
been affected or changed in the way that we interact with a world that has very, very much changed. So, you know, what is the, what is the relationship really now with, um, for instance, faith and reason? I mean, that was um, huge. So I I think that would be a starting point for um, what it would look like. That was kind of long-winded, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to also move because my, um, my lighting is getting worse as the sun is sitting. Andrew, as a um, God willing, soon to be deacon, what would being a deacon um, within all like what a year now or something, what would being like a Vatican say what God willing 11 months, what would being a, a deacon in the church of Vatican II look like in the same way that you, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a newly ordained deacon, um, around the time of the council of Trent, right. There are very specific issues that are, that mm-hmm. are, you know, facing the church, whether that be England, whether that be Germany, whether that be Germany again, um, <laughs> <laughs> like there's obviously a clear issue that the church is dealing with and that the clergy is dealing with mm-hmm. after these councils. Mm-hmm. What is it like to be a, a priest or a maybe deacon um, in the Vatican II church? Again, not in the negative connotations that, you know, it kind of gets um, whipped with, um, but in, in the more positive connotation of it. Yeah. So the first thing that comes to my mind um, is something that sounds so basic. Um, it's kind of startled me when it like, like uh, when it comes up, but that is RCIA. So for example, um, before the second Vatican council, um, Instru- like when people came into the church, they were given one-on-one instruction with a priest or a deacon. They d- there was no there was no sense of like having a communal formation in which you're bringing people into the like you're trying to you're giving people a year to be formed by the clergy by other uh, lay catechists to like take on the, the discipleship of Christ and to like really kind of assume um, the authority of a son of God uh, in baptism. Um, that's something that that's something that just was not the case before the Second Vatican Council, largely because the world was Christian, right? The the Western world was very Christian, and so um, when you're talking about people who are coming into the church before the Second Vatican Council, I mean, like again, going back to just what John Paul said very briefly to give my point context, right? Um, the reason that the Second Vatican Council was called was because the church saw that the church was speaking in a way the world simply didn't understand anymore. Um, and you can, we can, I hate that, right? Like I'm the, I'm the first person to kick and scream and say, well, the world should understand because we're talking in the language of truth and goodness and beauty. And we're talking in the language of like a dignifying human anthropology. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can kick and scream all I want about that. And John Paul will tell you about all the times I kick and scream at the seminary. But the, 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 the point is, is that the second Vatican council was called because the church saw that this language, the world didn't even the world didn't even have the 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 terms to understand it anymore, right? The word right doesn't mean the same thing to the church that it means to the world, right? The word dignity doesn't mean the same thing to the to the world that it does to the church, right? And so I think that in my mind, like realizing that things like RCIA, realizing that like as a deacon, I'm going to be involved in the formation of disciples of Jesus, like who are coming into the church in a way that nobody before the second Vatican council, no clergyman before the second Vatican council would have been um, just because that wasn't, that just wasn't the way that we operated because the assumption was the person had a strong understanding of what a Chris, what Christianity meant, what the obligations were. Um, 
So I think that that's the first thing that comes to my mind is just that the the idea that um, a post-Vatican Council church looks a lot more like like bare bones evangelization, like mm. just really like preaching the charisma, just preaching like the real Jesus Christ born, died, risen, ascended, um, and what that means for you. Um, and that sounds like ridiculously basic, but, and it's not that P, it's not that it wasn't happening before the council because the charisma was being preached before the council, but there, but the council documents put a heightened emphasis. It seems to me on, preaching the gospel to people who have never heard it before, or if they've heard it before, have never heard it properly and don't even have a proper framework to even think about it. Um, so that's the first thing that comes to my mind is kind of this idea that um, you're forming people in a much more basic way than uh, in, in, in the intention of the church. The church's intention is to form people in a much more basic way um, than it was before. Um, same thing with marriage prep. Marriage prep pre-Cana did not exist before the Second Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sa- same same fundamental concept, right? Because before the Second Vatican Council, uh, I don't think pre-Cana existed before the late 70s. Um, because the assumption was two people come to the church and want to get married. Okay, uh, six-month engagement. Um, and then a couple meetings with the priest to like make sure you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Uh, families are okay with it. Sweet. Okay, cool. And there was just this baseline assumption that people were all open to the goods of marriage, right? That people had an understanding of what marriage was. Not so anymore. And so I think that's really, I think, where we see um, in many ways, the church today actually has done a pretty good job in receiving uh, what the council wanted through things. We see things like RCA, we see things like marriage prep. Now, how effective those things have been is another conversation, but the church is trying, the church is seeking to implement those things. Um, and I think one of the reasons those things have not been as effective as, as we would hope is because the world is so broken uh, right now, because couples are not even in a place where they can, often couples are not in a place where they are willing to, or are able to hear what the church is trying to offer them in pre-Cana. And um, I think Archbishop Shapio of Philadelphia used to quote the statistic that something like half the people who are baptized in the church are not practicing a year later. Um, and again, that's just because I, I think it's, it's, it's sometimes it's not the fault of the catechist or the priest. It's just that um, people no longer think in terms of commitment. People no longer think in terms of giving their life for something. So while John Paul thought he was long-winded, I think that was even more okay. so. Uh, but that's my initial response to your question. Mark. Okay. So wait, so Shep, you mean when people who are baptized a year later, half of them are he's meaning like RCA candidates, right? Correct. Okay. He's not meaning like Voltaire-esque type two-year-olds or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just like, I'm, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly okay. Right. That's why they're yelling in the vestibule. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think there was Pope Francis who kind of recently made a comment about how few, like, um, I don't want to use the word religion, but like how how few Catholic marriages are done properly or like, or were both people. And I think that just personally, anecdotally, and just seeing the statistics, I think that might be one of the biggest issues facing the church. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people enter into marriage not prepared to make that commitment 
or unable to make that commitment. And then how many broken families come out of that? And it seems to me like just talking to people, it almost seems like sometimes marriage is seen like the default position. Like, oh, I, you know, I've gotten to this point in my life, I should settle down and get married. Mm -hmm. But it's, well, no, I mean, if you're, you're a Catholic, it's a vocation, it's a calling. You're, you're actually doing something. It's not like you're retiring and you're going to go like Mm -hmm. live out the rest of your days. It's like, no, you're, you're getting a new job. You're getting a new vocation. This is something that requires all of your attention and all of your devotion other than God, you know, like it's a spiritual endeavor. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if I haven't read any, if if there's a document about marriage in the second Vatican council, or at least talks about touches on it, I would be really interested in. Uh, Marriage is talked about. Yeah. Jump while you're muted. Um, No, no, you're not. No, he's not. not. Sorry. I just couldn't hear you. Your mouth was moving, but I couldn't hear you. Um, the, uh, Mauro can just edit that out later. Um, oh, it's fine. I'd leave everything in now. I'm too. <laughs> Again, I said my mind is ash and dust. I'm like, I'm beyond editing. Like, uh, you're all just, this is you. The only, just go, here you go. It's like, that's it. That's it. I, <laughs> I think that Gaudi Mitzvah talks about marriage. Okay. Uh, yeah. It, does, it doesn't talk about it extensively, but it does talk about marriage. Uh, it talks about marriage as a way of sanctifying the world, couples mm-hmm. sanctifying one another and sanctifying the world. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I, well, we could, I don't want to get on a side tangent about marriage, but I think that, um, uh, <laughs> uh, I think that I, Peter, I, I, I agree and disagree with what you're saying. The, okay. I think yeah. that there, like when you say that, like there actually is something in my mind, at least there actually is something really healthy about a man who gets to 24, 25 years old and then looks around and says, I, I should be married. Like I should be getting married. Like yeah. that's actually is something I, so like, like if I, if I, if I was going to nuance your point, I actually think that's like really normal and really healthy. Okay, um, yeah. I think that when mm-hmm. men get into their thirties and forties. Oh, no. Oh yeah. It looks like, uh, I can finish his thought. Okay. Yeah. Let's finish his thought for him. Cause he gets into their thirties and forties and uh, they don't even have that desire. Right. That, um, yeah. That there's, there's something going on there because, you know, for instance, and um, that this calling, you know, the thing of theology of the body, um, this, this calling, sometimes I think we think about the vocational calling as if, you know, every Catholic needs to, go into the chapel and pray and God will speak to you marriage or speak to you priesthood, right. speak to you something else. Right. And um, like we're men. So we're called to be married and um, called to have a spouse and have a family. And we can know that and receive that calling from God uh, in prayer, but we can mm-hmm. also receive that calling and communication from God, just from knowledge of, ourself, knowledge of our bodies, knowledge of family, all the things that we're um, raised in and know that that's for our good and our happiness. And um, there's a, uh, uh, yeah, there's a telos that's, um, that's enjoyed there. So rather than being an either, or for instance, like for me, it's, it's not the notion of like, am I called to marriage or not? I think sometimes guys do that where they're like, I don't know whether I'm called to marriage or called to become a priest. It's like, no, 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 dude, you're like, you're called to marriage, like most definitely, you know, um, and like receive that and, um, and, and know that that's a good for you and that you were made for that. Um, and, and then, you know, if, um, if through 
an additional calling from God, this kind of superabundant calling. Mm-hmm. You are made a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, right? On on behalf of or um, uh, for the sake of or by way of the kingdom, like then yeah. that 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 desire will be fulfilled. Um, gotcha. But it's still it's still that that um, that marital calling. Right. That's fulfilled in the priesthood, not a different. Um, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes, that makes sense. That makes that definitely makes sense. It was like I guess elevation of a natural instinct. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have, let's say, you have somebody who is in their thirties or forties, and yeah. they've spent their life nominally Catholic maybe an alcohol, you know, maybe they struggle with addiction of some sort and they're thinking, but they have that natural instinct where it's like, I want to get married. Obviously they would have to go through a significant spiritual reversion uh-huh. before they should embark on finding somebody to join them. Like you need, like it's, even though it is your, it's a natural based desire that is good and holy you shouldn't enter into it until, in, unless you are in a certain state, right? Like it, it's not something that you should just do for the sake of doing. Right. And more than just a base desire, like it's, and you know that, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. uh, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the whole person that's, um, that's desired and, and that desires and that is fulfilled um, right. in that, in that vocation. Um when Jesus talks about, you know, eunuchs, um, you know, he, he, he also, he doesn't just speak about those who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. He also speaks about eunuchs uh, because they were born. So, and eunuchs mm-hmm. because others have made them. So, um, and, uh, and, and this of course is like sensitive because you can also have like, a, God isn't bound by any of these categories that we are speaking. Right. These are just things in which we kind of like, Hey, I've, I've noticed this in myself. I can talk to other seminarians and they've had similar experiences in this regard. I'm not saying that you couldn't have someone who has, um, vocational callings to, um, especially like intellectually or so forth, or to give their lives away, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in other capacities. But, uh, yeah, if if someone is in just different places in life, I mean, yeah, you could be in prison. You're not going to be able to get married while, while you're in prison. Um, but a couple things like one, uh, you know, if, if you do still have that desire and it can't be fulfilled, like uh, allowing oneself to actually grieve that, you know, um, yeah. like if, if you wish that you were married and you are not married, um, then that, that could either, you know, make you pursue marriage mm-hmm. or depending on what your situation is, right. If it's, if it cannot be accomplished, then, um, then allowing yourself to like grieve a, a real loss of a real good. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that, that's, that's sad that that was not accomplished for you. Jesus is there for you in that suffering, but to just kind of try to act like, well, that wasn't for me anyways, ever. It's like, sure. I mean, there, there could be lots of even physical reasons why yeah. that would be so, but those are also sufferings and sadnesses that we, that we have to uh, let people acknowledge for themselves so they can actually, yeah, uh, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Andrew, you're muted, but welcome back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm muted because um, <clears throat> the power is out. We're at my location. 
and um, so I'm, I got on my cell phone. Uh, and I'm on, I'm on the app on my cell phone. So, Ooh. but I'm outside because it's all dark inside. Oh, so uh, there's cars driving by because I'm on the front porch here. It's okay. So anyway, it sounds like I caught the sound in the lamp and liquor podcast. Like, well, there you go. Crying, <laughs> drinks, yes. um, board, cars, birds, planes. Who cares? Just... Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it sounds like I just caught the tail end of what was a good conversation. I have an idea what John Paul probably said. I uh, finished your sentence. Like, exactly. Oh, sweet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. So cool. I guess to bring it back to the Vatican too, then a little bit. Yeah. Um, this was something that uh, Andrew mentioned about dealing with a society that really isn't even Christian at this point. Um, and it also links up with uh, when I was listening to Michael Lofton talking with Ralph Martin last night when I was on a podcast or they were on a podcast. I wasn't on the podcast. I was listening to the podcast. Um, but I was, <laughs> but Ralph Martin and Michael Lofton's point were that yes, the church has tried um, to meet the world where it's at, but the world seems to have taken that almost as is either as a sign of weakness, A, or B, as a sign of compromise, where it's like, oh, no, we're actually going to, you know, start, start kind of agreeing with you guys and everything as opposed to, um, to trying to meet people where they're at, which obviously there's a lot of benefits and a lot, a lot of goods um, to that. Um, but I guess, where is the point in which you... Where is that then kind of that good medium between extremes where you do meet the world and you do meet individuals uh, where they're at, um, but at the same time, you don't compromise on your beliefs? How do you kind of navigate that water? Because it seems like, at least from their perspective, and I don't know what you guys think on this, is that um, too much from a pastoral standpoint after Vatican II has been too much focused on kind of acquiescing to what people want and not enough on actually being like, yes, well, but on the other side, it actually is, is this like you actually, that there are things that have to be believed. Um, one of the examples that was brought up was Lumen Gentium where I guess they brought up Carl Rahner um, talking about kind of like how everyone's kind of a Christian, like deep down mm. in kind of the mm. assumption that everyone, you know, has is like, I forget you guys can correct me on the correct theological terms. Um, kind of everyone's a Christian at heart and kind of everyone is infused with grace kind of because they all kind of live, try to live a good life, et cetera. And that everyone forgets. And Ralph Martin made this point that at the end, like, I think it was Lumen Gentium, probably, I don't know, whatever, like chapter 16 or 17 or something. Section 16. 16. Okay. Thank you. Good. Um, where at the end of like the very last few paragraphs, last sentence are like, yeah, but it, this is really difficult to get. And that we go from, we go from like, oh man, we need <laughs> to really try to preach the gospel to kind of this assumption of like, yeah, everyone's kind of cool. Everyone's, you know, we're all cool, man. Like, it's all good. Like, let's roll with it. So I guess that, like, how do we meet people where they're at, but also not obviously sacrificing morals? Um, and then also, this is just a more practical thing, because this was just kind of like, as I'm flying on a plane, thinking about it, looking at all the other people on the plane going existentially, like, oh, shoot, like, let's just play this plane goes down, like, crashes into the, crashes in the mountains or something, like, what could I have done to preach the gospel to these people? Or how could these <laughs> people like what's like it's going exponential, like not exponential, existential on me? Like, oh man, like what do I do? Oh man, like so I don't know. You guys can that was long-winded as well. It wasn't really a question, it was more just like tossing out random thoughts that have been percolating in my head. But I just I don't know. Do you guys have any reactions to that? Well, I mean, yeah, part of it's like like practically 
um, you know, back to using our uh, non-implementation word or reform, like, yeah, how, well, how do we have those conversations with people practically? Like sometimes, you know, when we talk, like these conversations can always tend towards the, uh, um, you know, the seminarian when I'm bishop or what the bishop should be doing or, uh, for Andrew, it's always, you know, when he's, when he's Pope and, and what Pope should be doing, but like, <laughs> but what should the um, infallibility be up to these days? Right. right. <laughs> like, like take some, t- take some darn personal responsibility, you know? Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Okay. Amen. So like, seriously, like, you know, for me, what is this, you know? And, and for me, what are these conversations? And, and what's really neat is, you know, going back to the Peter's comment on modernism, it's like, I, I like, practically speaking, I'm getting a ton of that, um, conversations. So, um, yeah, as far as like, yeah, when do we need to, where do we need to meet people? Are we coddling too much and so forth? Like, this is, this is personal. This is, this is interpersonal. It's person to person. This isn't, we don't have another, you know, we're not having a dialogue with an institution here. It's not like Catholic church talking to, you know, Lutheranism, although we should be doing stuff like that. Um, a lot of these are more of just like, yeah, John Paul talking to like, you know, this week it was like Carolina and Denise, you know, it's like, okay, well, how did those, how did those conversations go? Um, right. And, um, and yeah, and yeah. And also, you know, it just, it just popped into my mind. Um, uh, there was a Bible study back in Front Royal. Um, it was at, uh, um, you know, Dynamic Life Church. It's there on, um, uh, uh, actually, I don't know. I don't think it was there. Um, but for some reason, my mind is there that we were having a Bible study there. It was like a, um, you know, interfaith Bible study. And it was really amazing because, um, you know, if, if, when you start to get into like historical critical method and everything and like how how possible would some of those have been earlier, you know, but for like my confidence and, um, you know, with, with Dave Erebum and so forth and like, no, I can, I can discuss this. I can even discuss this in a scientific way mm-hmm. um, with, you know, with them. And that actually does help us a lot in having discussions about our faith. Um, because if, if we're not meeting each other there on that, just very, natural level about what we're reading um and what it means then a lot of those deeper discussions that we want to have and want to be able to discuss um aren't going to happen um so those are just some yeah mm-hmm. things that came to mind yeah i really i really really like john paul is really good at this uh where john paul really is good at bringing it back to like what are two things what are you doing and then like how is it inner like and like so much of what we're talking about is person to person and i think i think that's jump that's really good that you like keep beating that drum because i think that's exactly right and i think that's one of the things that we all are supposed to take away from not only the second vatican council but obviously fundamentally most fundamentally from the preaching of our lord himself right um <clears throat> and and so i think that's that's i think really vital um to, 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 to get to answer another angle on the Ralph Martin's point. Um, I think Ralph Martin is a very astute observer of the things in the church. Uh, I'm really impressed with what I've read from him so far. Um, 
And I think he's right that they're that in the approach, broadly speaking, of many sections of the church today, I think um, we do see a kind of practical universalism at work, right? Um, I mean, during the Amazonian Synod, there was the one bishop who had formerly been in charge of I forget which section of the Amazon he had been in charge of, but he said he said he proudly had never baptized a baby in the Amazon because he had not wanted to colonize them. Essentially, what? he saw baptism he saw baptism as a form of colonialism, right? Which is like totally right. Which is which is a totally backwards way. It's like it's it's, it's nonsensical, right? It's a totally nonsensical way of seeing the world, and it's a totally nonsensical way of seeing the gospel. Um, but. But there has been this kind of like false, it's modernism, right? And John Paul's right to point that out. There's been this false kind of, um, I don't even want to, I don't even want to say, I actually am not even, I'm not even going to dignify that kind of approach with saying it's kind of a false integration of the council or a false appropriation of the council. It's just, it's just, it's just not even, it, it, it blatantly ignores everything the council calls for. Uh, it just does. Um, and so people, people who want to point to the Second Vatican Council for their belief in universalism, uh, anonymous Christian, as Ronner used to talk about, right? People who actually want to point to the council uh, to talk about those things, they can't even really do that. There's not even a peg they can hang their hat on, right? Because they're just picking and ch- they're cherry picking. They're saying, well, no, here it says in, says in Lumen Gentium that it's possible for people outside the visible church to be saved. And you're like, yeah, read the next sentence. <laughs> like, yes, it's possible. Um, but we don't know it's it and it's and it's very uncertain and so we and so the church has always taken great care to preach the missions right so i i think that 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 there's no question that after the council there has been in many places um this idea that people are many like almost everybody's going to be saved through invincible ignorance or these different things there's you no know, surveys Pinkers talks about that in his book on moral theology that we read at the seminary he talks about that exact kind of stuff and just lays it all out um but i i i think that when people say that they're this well this is in the council documents it's just not true it's just not true um and i think that that's that's what we have to say when we encounter that yeah. is when people when people say when people say, oh, okay, oh, like, you know, look at Lumen Gentium 16, I guess I can say, yeah, and then I'm going to keep quoting Lumen Gentium 16 at them, and I'm going to say it's not there. And I think there's a lot of things that that um, a lot of people who are not preaching the gospel today are taking and saying are in Vatican II, which just is not there. It's just not there. So. Um. um Go ahead. Someone was- oh, no, go ahead, Thomas. I was going to kind of no, switch no, no, gears, no. so go ahead. No, 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 switch switch the gears because my switching gears would have been one way and you should probably switch the gears the other way. And we can- <laughs> okay. This is a very, I, this, there's a lot, we could switch the gears a lot. There's, you know, um, a couple of drinks in, gears are pretty lubricated. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I really like what you guys have been saying about, um, you know, finding, like, looking, being introspective, and trying to find how you can better interact with people to bring them closer to Christ and bring them salvation. Like, I feel like that's a really good approach, especially when you're reading back into, I mean, I, I feel like uh, Bishop Robert Barron has done a very good job in his defense of the second Vatican council, kind of highlighting these things as well. Um, but I, as I guess one question that I haven't seen really touched on is prior to the second Vatican council, the church had had, a very successful history of missionary work. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess, what was it about the 
church of the mid-century that was different than what had been prior in the prior centuries where they had gone to Africa and Asia and the North America and South America and they had baptized millions. What what so what was the what, so you guys are talking about the, the would it be the advent of modernism had gotten hold of Europe and people just weren't receptive in the way that the peoples of those other continents would have been? Or I, I guess that's just kind of my question. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I've been talking a while, but my 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 initial take, um, my initial take is that it's it's very very different trying to evangelize people who are living in a culture which is pre-Christian to evangelizing mm-hmm. a culture which is post-Christian. Oh, so because, I, yeah, yeah. Go ahead and say what you're yeah, going to say. Yeah. No, because there's there's because in a in a pre-Christian culture, right? Like when Saint Patrick got to Ireland, right? The Druids were offering human sacrifice. Yeah. Right. And people were every year, people in villages were losing their children to the worship of their gods. It's a right. Easy and sell. so that's not to denigrate St. Patrick or anything, but that is, there is an easy sell on that one. <laughs> we're just <laughs> pouring water. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Hey, you're not going to slit his throat. No, it's just pouring water. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's my point. Right. But this is my point, right? Is that when Christianity comes to places, no, but in some fundamental way, yeah. right? Christianity is a really easy sell. Yeah. In some fun, on, on, in a certain existential way, it's like, hey, you don't have to sacrifice your kids anymore. Hey, treat each other with dignity. Hey, like, and it's not that it's not hard. Christianity's hard. Being a disciple of Jesus is difficult, but life's hard. And yeah. life's difficult. So there's a there's a the, the difference between evangelizing a pre-Christian culture and a post-Christian culture is night and day. Because in a post-Christian culture, there are all these bedrock assumptions that are built into the edifice of a post-Christian culture, which assumes Christianity has been debunked, which assumes that Christianity has been found wanting, which assumes like there's all these assumptions that are built into our current contemporary culture that um say that we're beyond Christianity. And so you're, it's kind of like you're trying to, like getting people to stop thinking in a postmodern way and start thinking, like just get people to stop thinking, uh, to use philosophical terms, right? In, to get people to stop thinking, thinking in idealist terms and start thinking in realist terms is hard because, because idealism has assumed for centuries that realism has been debunked, right? right. So that's i really like the point um that you made about pre and post-christian societies matt frad just had an exorcist for the archdiocese of indianapolis on his podcast Mm -hmm. and he made this point but specifically about the devil's hold on countries that are post-christian and they were talking about how the need for exorcists in, in countries that were catholic before but are no longer is very high because the devil has for some reason a much stronger hold in these countries than they would in a non-christian is much easier to kick essentially said it's much easier to exercise a community of non-christians who have never been christian than to do it to a group <clears throat> who come from kind of a christian judeo-christian background it's um you, if you if you get a chance to listen to that podcast, I highly recommend it. Like, okay, sure, it's really very good. I'm not doing what he said, Justin. It's just kind. Of, there seems to be this kind of what you're talking about. Well, like, there's the philosophical side, but there might even be something spiritual going on here. 
where people have turned their back on God and have kind of embraced this hedonistic way of life. And it's very difficult to root it out once it's taken hold. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to the words of Christ, right? When Christ says that, like, when he casts out, you know, casts out a demon and the demon wanders, you know, for however long, and then the demon comes back and he makes that man's abode, like, and he brings back with him, whatever it is, seven other demons. And like the state of that man is worse than it was before. It's like this idea that like that you, the, the pre-Christian man, the devil is driven out. But then if the man, you know, if the man culture civilization turns its back on God after having received the light of Christ, then how much worse is the condition of the man? And Jesus himself seems to say his condition is much worse. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And and back to your original question, um, Peter, about the, yeah, the the missions. Yeah. Um, You know, in this um, American church history class, so, uh, you know, Catholic church in America history. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a chart um, the professor put on the, board which showed like it was like total religious vocations in america over the course of american history mm-hmm. and it's like doop, 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 doop. and then like we had like nobody here forever and yeah. then and then all of a sudden it's like 20th century and things just like spike out of control right yeah and then you get to like 1960s and then it just like fell off a cliff. Gosh. So I'm sitting there in class and, and like, yeah, okay. You're looking, take one look at that chart and you're like, okay, I think we're going to be talking about the second Vatican council. And it didn't even come up. We we're like, we're just like talking about like history. Right. And, other stuff. and I raised my hand. I was like, Hey, can we talk about like what was happening in the church at the moment that like this chart shows that we yeah. fell off a major cliff? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, any connection there? Yeah. And, and and he was he was kind of like, well, you know, like you know, you, you do the classic, like it's um, doesn't mean it's causal just because it's correlated and everything. Sure. And I'm like, sure, but like, like then what caused it? Like, you yeah. know, anything. And um, it was interesting. He was talking about how even though a chart of um and the reason i'm saying that is because as far as um missionary work is in the missions mm-hmm. right uh, handled almost exclusively by religious yeah um, as right. as have been um catholic uh hospitals and uh you know our centers of education forever yeah, um, yeah. We're, we're in kind of this is this is a little bizarre now you go onto like a a catholic university uh campus or a um, you know a Catholic hospital, you can you can walk right through. The chances that you will not run into a religious are actually like substantial, which yeah. should be shocking, um, right. like historically speaking. Yeah. And he was saying that you know even though it peaked then, that the um, the highest we ever had it per capita was in the 30s, um, and that it continued through into the 60s because of the the population boom so even though from the 30s through to the 60s we continued to have an increased total number of vocations in this country that um we were already you know the decline really per capita in this country began in the 30s so didn't end up answering my question as far as right like what leads to that but 
some of the fallout of that, I think, does get answered by numbers. Um, my great uncle is a missionary in uh, Ghana, Africa. He's been a priest there for like over 50 years. And it's really cool because like he's um, he's super liberal, man. He's like <laughs> he's like, you know, he's like totally probably on board, I think, with, uh, you know, women's ordination and everything. We've had we've had lots of firework discussions and um mm-hmm. you know the guy was just super on cloud nine about obama being president <laughs> and everything. he's just like he's a great guy right. and what's cool is, is that he's you know given his whole life to um being in africa speaking many different languages um eating you know nothing that he grew up with um and and he has more seminarians in the parishes that they started since he's been over there than um then they have priests over there and, yeah. and those guys are, you know, um, I haven't met them. I was supposed to go last year. I was so angry. So the COVID thing wrecked my chances to go to some of their ordination. Cause it would have been really, really that's awesome. Cool. But yeah. uh, I mean, like it, like just to watch, you know, that's, that's just one guy, you know, who like gave his life to the church and was in seminary in like a super rough time to be a seminary. I think he was at Catholic university in the seventies. So it's like, okay, that's going to yeah. be tough. Yeah. Um, and, and still what's, what's being accomplished through him. So um, like if we had the numbers that we did um, I don't, you know, I, I, I can't imagine what it would look like right now in the missions, but also mm-hmm. in our, 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 you know, um, hospitals in schools, and yeah. our, the poor, like our hospitals and our, our like um, schools right now, they're like, you don't want the Catholic church to become like this, like place where the rich go to have good things. Right. Yep. It's like, yep. supposed to be like bringing this <laughs> to the poor. And it's like, Oh, I can't afford to go to Catholic school. It's like, Oh, what happened? Yeah. I'm experiencing that right now. I trying to find a school for my kids and the only Catholic school nearby is like more expensive than the private school that like the secular private school. It's like, it's out of control. And, um, and, and the reason being, obviously, like you're saying, like they're the religious aren't there. So you have to pay teachers, you know, a, a, a wage that is like, yeah, it's but um, I, that's a good point. And so I wonder. Like, so with the Second Vatican Council, was there it, like where in the, the council, it, like would somebody who's looking at the council say, the council didn't do enough to support the religious orders or there was kind of a, like you were saying it was happening before the sixties. So in the U S so it's probably not correlated or caused caused by it. It was like, well, there's a connection there. Look at the chart. Yeah. It it does fall (laughs) off a cliff. Right. Right. It does fall (laughs) off of the cliff. So like, is there a, was there an intended, like, is there anything in the council about religious orders that had a negative impact on, um, on them? Or do you think that, yeah. Or maybe not necessarily even in the documents themselves, but in the way the documents were quote unquote implemented. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, so yeah, exactly. Those reforms, like the, the constitutions and the rewriting of, I, I, I'm trying to remember right now, someone had told me the story, um, but you know, I hope this isn't um, incorrect, but that even the Carthusians got, you know, dealt with, afterwards and should have probably been left alone you just like right. leave those guys alone you know and, yeah. and they're incredibly holy men so, um 
you know, they're going to respond. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I I know when I was a kid, I mean, I I mowed lawns for old ladies in the neighborhood. A lot of old ladies in the neighborhood used to be nuns, but weren't nuns anymore because things got nuts at their convents. And so they left and some of them had taken their vows seriously. And so they thought, well, I guess I'm not getting married. So I'm going to be in this house, you know? Um, So there's obviously some like horrible fallout from that. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, dear to my heart, my, my older sister is a religious sister. Uh, It's funny, Mm -hmm. actually, we just talked about the, uh, or I was, (laughs) uh, was in my class, wasn't she? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think so she's she, in my class. Yeah, yeah, she was Christina. Yeah, yeah. And now she's uh, Sister Grace Augustine of the Cross, okay. um, with the Carmelites of the Divine Heart of Jesus in St. Louis. They have a, a nursing home and a daycare center attached to their convent, and it, it was really neat. That was another instance where, um, like, uh, I forget. I think it was. I have an uncle who's really um, uh, quite the businessman, and so he was out there visiting them, and and they see. I mean, they're Carmelites, so it's all about like praying the chaplet with you know the dying (laughs) and he's looking at he's looking at this thing like whoa you know if you had a bunch of nuns you could totally take the entire nursing home industry (laughs) (laughs) like right (laughs) it's like it's like yeah okay yeah like everyone would end up in a a catholic hospital because and, and you know what you know, good. Even if you're not Catholic, who doesn't want to die with a nun praying? Next yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you about them nuns. I might put some nun hex on me. I don't know. <laughs> that ended up happening. In fact, um, our relationship with Protestants in this country um, was was helped in a great part during the Civil War with religious sisters who yeah. were in all of these health institutions that all of these soldiers, majority not Catholics, were in. Mm-hmm. And, and so th- they were finally having encounters with, like, religious, with, like, habited Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, sorry to throw yeah. off on that tangent, but yeah. No, that definitely answers my question. I think that yeah. that's a way I haven't ever thought or looked at it before, but I think that's really, that's a really pertinent issue. And, yeah, and um, I'm not savvy as to, like, what the like why constitutions were like what they were asked to change. So like my, I have an yeah. aunt, got, my sister's a Carmelite and then I got two aunts who are Carmelites. A lot of, a lot of Carmelites going can on. We just, can we just call this, can we just call this podcast the Heisler clerical dynasty or something? I mean, yeah, just, like, pretty much wait, like a conversation with uh, Deacon John Paul about his uh, family and all the graces they are. <laughs> 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 um, so uh one of my aunts is in uh, uh carmel um order of the carmelites discalced in in buffalo new york so they're you know discalced cloistered we meet mm-hmm. behind a double double grill um right. and her you know her community obviously had to go through changes after the council um they really didn't have to um I, I don't know what it what it did inside of the convent. At the, at the very least, though, the mass that you're going to yep. is changing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they they still sing all of the office, um, but and they sing it in Latin. Um, but like any changes that are happening in the church, of course, are going to be affecting um, religious 
Uh, and then their constitutions do. I, I wish I knew more about that. Um, what what was called for mm-hmm. um, in, in their constitutions being looked at or whether they needed to have updates or something like that. Um, yeah. But like, for instance, now it's interesting because just within the past two years, their um, their mother now has their, you know, their their every day mass, their daily mass and Sunday masses are all extraordinary form now. Um, and the idea basically there was they kind of realized like um, that, you know, I, I don't know the, the whole story, but um, the gist of it being like the life that we're living here and those who are called to live this life and attracted to this life that um, really since 2008, really, that this has become um, a more common way of them, uh, of these, these young women, of their prayer lives and their faith lives, um, of, you know, girls who, it's funny because like even I grew up <laughs> the extraordinary form mass, you know, um, at St. John's, like I was, a, I was an altar boy as a little 11 year old mm-hmm. um, um, and serving extraordinary form. So there's kind of this whole weird new wave of kids who are, used to it uh, from childhood. Um, and, and so I think that that was, yeah. Anyway. Interesting. Yeah. We'll there. So I guess um, kind of bringing it back just a little bit um, to just communicating with a post Christian society. Um, what are both of yours and even Peter's, I don't really care who speaks at this point um, advice and just how do you communicate the gospel with, you know, people who are post-Christian, either were raised Christian nominally and since fallen away. Um, how do you communicate with them? Because, you know, my example, it's, it's pretty obvious I'm Catholic. Like when we do Latin sight reading and we read the medieval mass and like there's some mm-hmm. liturgical part that like nobody gets, everyone looks at me to try to explain. <laughs> like, I, I, come on. I, like, I only sort of get this stuff. Come on. Like, 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 will you go to the Latin mass? Like that's Trent. That's not the medieval mass. You gotta be kidding me. Like stop equivocating. Um, but, um, so I guess what is um, just, I guess what sort of questions and what sort of, not just witness, obviously witness is an important part, but what do you try to bring to the forefront to communicate the gospel to a post-Christian society? Because sometimes conversion and trying to um, convert other people and to bring the light of the gospel sometimes, unfortunately, can come across as a bit shrill, right? Like, you just, ah, I mean, you should do this kind of thing. Or like when you think more in Protestant terms of just, you know, kind of like repent or be damned kind of thing. Um, to stereotype the position, obviously. So I guess, what do you bring to the forefront with people who are post-Christian? Yeah, obviously, big, 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 big question. Um, okay, so I just like dropped like the yeah, whole yeah. I mean, it's like, church yeah, for like all this time period. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so like, uh, guys, how do you uh, how do you preach the gospel? It's like, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, look, like, you guys are being trained to this. I'm just like, no, oh, true story. True story. And there's lots of different. So, so first of all, I think that it goes back to what John Paul said earlier, that it's always person to person. The gospel is always transmitted person to person. It's never transmitted any other way. Um, and so I think that one of the things um, that, that, uh, that I think you have to do is you have to see, like, I think, we're always evangelizing. I think is the key is the key thing. We're always evangelizing. 
Sometimes we evangelize um, more with more directly. Sometimes we evangelize less directly. But I think that something that helps me uh, and also intimidates me and scares me, frankly, a little bit is to know that I'm always evangelizing. I'm never not. And if I ever think that I'm not, then I'm actually missing the boat. I'm missing something that's happening. I'm missing grace that's actually trying to be worked in my life. Um, so that's the first thing is to know that you're already like you're evangelizing to everybody you're in grad school with right now. Sort of. Like you just not, are. Not, not, not very well. I'm going to add, <laughs> <laughs> but just, but you are. And that's, and that's kind of, that's kind of cool. Actually. It's kind of, when you realize that it actually is kind of cool and it means and it's scary. You, and it's scary. I do a good it's job scary. of it. <laughs> right. But it, but it also means that your life is, is, is tinged with meaning. Um, it means that your life is tinged with meaning. Um, and that's, that's really soaked in meaning really. And so that's good. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I think, so I think that that's the fundamental thing to remember. And then whether you lead with beauty as, as Robert Barron likes to do, or whether you lead with, um, you know, like questions, like, are you happy? Right. Like there's people who have come into the Catholic church because they had a Catholic friend who asked them, are you happy? And they were like, not really. And it's like, okay, well, why what's going on? Um, and I think that that's, you know, so. I think that's my first starting spot is that we're always evangelizing. That's an interesting way of, of looking at it and thinking about it, that there's, that you are always going out in like, as soon as you walk out of your front door, you're going out into mission territory. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not, that's not to deny that there is an evangelization that happened in the middle ages, stuff like that. I always hate it when people equivocate and like, Oh my gosh, this is like completely different than anything. This has never happened before. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. I'm like, no, stop um i might be thinking about a different podcast right now um but anyway so but <laughs> well, let me let me make one final point yeah um uh father father mike schmitz gave a talk right at st charles Borromeo seminary in philadelphia you can watch the talk on youtube i heard you asked him a lot of questions uh only one uh, <laughs> only one <laughs> i only asked one um well done thomas yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know what's up uh can i be like um, an honorary seminarian just for the amount of i know just for giving, me crap. <laughs> just giving me crap um uh but one of the things he said that i thought was like a real great one of his probably his best one-liner of the night was he said people are always asking me uh, i'm not going to talk as fast as father mike because then it would just you know lose its urgency yeah. but uh he said people are always asking me how do we become like a catholic speaker how do I become a Catholic? Like, how do I become a Catholic speaker? And he said, uh, you get baptized and then you start talking. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. That's it. And I think that that's, that's, that's so, it's so important to keep, keep that fundamental reality in perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking to, um, uh, when I was in college seminary, Andrew knows the story. Um, they, they would send us out on street evangelization. So we'd go out onto the street corners and preach the gospel. And it was awesome. I love street evangelization. Tried to replicate it in other places. And it's just street evangelizations in places outside of D.C., which is actually just as awesome. Did it in uh, Westchester, did it in Philadelphia. Um, and it's, yeah, it's an amazing experience. And the first, the first time that uh, I, I did it, I was with a buddy and... Well, uh, are you, are you heading out? Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Peace. Peace. Good to see you. Continue. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the first time that, uh, I did it, this, this lady, she's, she's like walking by and gets stopped at the crosswalk and 
I walked up to her and I was like, excuse me, ma'am, do you, uh, do you have a minute to talk with me about Jesus? And she dropped her purse on the ground, spun around and she goes, honey, I got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so like flabbergasted that uh-huh. somebody wanted to talk about Jesus to the extent that I realized for the first time, I have nothing to say. Like, I, I don't know when someone wants to talk to me about Jesus, what do you say to him? And so I was like, uh, and, and then, you know, spirit. And it's like, Whoa. Okay. I'm going to tell you about what Jesus has done in my life this past week. And with a lot of people that I speak to, um, about the faith or about Jesus or God, um, a lot of times it's telling them, about my life with Christ within either the past day or the past week. And even in the seminary, Andrew and I are part of the same, call them small groups. Sometimes they're Yezu Caritas groups. Anyway, um, basically um, groups of brotherhood where we get together and uh, pray with one another and um, yeah, and, and speak to one another uh, in, a, in a place that we can be um, yeah, truly free and open. And one of the things that we do, it's called a uh, ROL. It's a review of life, and it's it's speaking about Jesus as present and active and alive in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if God isn't active in your life, it is it is very very difficult to speak about Him to someone. And I found that like over the years, like I honestly think four years ago. So I've been in seminary for four years or for seven years it's only been four years that I would have referred to Jesus as like one of my friends. Hmm. Um, even when I began like the first couple of years of seminary, like, um, you know, and I, I'm not knocking any of the, like it was beautiful life with Christ, um, but it's developed. And, and, and as the relationship has developed and I, I speak to him differently now than I did before. Um, that also just comes across naturally when I'm speaking about him to others. Um, and yeah, so like, yeah, I'm getting ordained in 10 days. And so for the past two days, like been having trouble going to bed. Can't believe this is going on. I don't really know. Like people ask me how I feel, which is just like, like, I don't know. I don't like, this is, this is really, really weird emotion stuff. But what's, (laughs) what's been really cool is it's like, and I don't want to talk to like anyone more than Jesus about what's going on with me. And I'm like, so happy that like, this is really rich stuff to get to discuss. Mm-hmm. And it's also amazing. Cause I would have, you know, never before thought he had as much interest as he actually does in speaking to me, um, about these days. And it's been just like an incredible dialogue. Um, so yeah, just like having that relationship with God first and then communicating that relationship to others. Sometimes, then we get the exciting part. Sometimes it's like, Hey, like I like to discuss theology in an apologetic sense. And it is really good to get to, you know, testify on behalf of like God and God speaking through you when those opportunities present themselves. But I don't find that that's normally the, um, the point where just the natural human conversation about a person begins. Normally it's more about talking about somebody. That makes sense. Yeah, because here at the university, there's always um, 
there's always a lot of different Protestant groups that'll try to grab people uh, for the different missionary work, whether that be the Baptists or the non-denominationals. And at the beginning of the um, of the school year, they'll always put out these booths. I mean, the Catholic Center does as well, right? To their credit, which is good. They'll put out a booth, you know, passerbys, talk to them, stuff like that, invite them. It's kind of at the beginning when the freshmen are first coming onto campus. Like, oh, what should I do? I don't know. You're a freshman. You don't know anything. Um, and they're just like wandering around and like, oh, you're a Catholic. Why don't you come? We have mass. And so it's a good thing, right? Um, but then part of me has always popped in my head because like once I kind of struck up a conversation with one of the booths because they randomly asked me if I wanted water. And I'm like, yeah, it's the South and it's 90 degrees with like a billion billion something humidity of course i want some water here give me some water um and so then like i was thinking like why didn't i just like say hey guys you want to come to mass sometime we'll throw you off the deep end like let's go to the latin mass like like, (laughs) let's go full crazy here (laughs) um yes um, but i mean like i think it is interesting when you mentioned that andrew talking about always kind of being on in a missionary spirit when you walk out of your door and when you interact with the um with the outside world because it's very much a privilege right to be able to preach the gospel to all the nations right um but it's also a little bit scary you know there's there's a little bit of a um a little bit of a burden of um importance to to that to that witness and and to doing to giving that witness um how much more time do you guys have by the way we still rolling well or on yeah Mine's just my battery, so as long as that's <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. It's and fun. your light, because you keep on moving from light to light as it goes yeah. out. Yeah. What is there no electricity light, yeah. in the seminary or something? <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you guys do in uh, old school, like candles? Like, actually, yeah. The, I mean, the places where I could get lighting would just be really funny. Like right now, all the priests are gone, and we have confessions on Wednesdays. Uh-huh. We have like five or six priests here confessions for like two and a half hours every Wednesday, and. um so they're all gone right now. So I could do it at the kitchen table, but I know the moment I get there, they're going to come back and then <laughs> I'm going to come back out here. Hey, 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 fathers, you want to be on a podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. I guess to go back to the original thesis of this episode, which was Vatican II, um, what about liturgy? Because we haven't talked about liturgy a whole lot just yet. Um, what is correct implementation look like? Um, not correct, but just implementation of liturgy and how does liturgy play a role um, within that whole framework of evangelization of a non-Christian world. Um, because in many ways, and this is not to sit and diss on um, the Novus Ordo, but it is to bring up the point that like, if I were going to bring a Protestant to, um, if I were going to bring a Protestant to a, to a, fir- to a mass, I really would think about either doing a Latin mass or some Byzantine divine liturgy, just because I want to take them out of like the very straightforward, understandable, discernible reality that, that we all exist in where we all speak in English and in syllables and phrases that we all understand and things like that, and just move it completely into a different setting. Um, but at the same time, obviously, there's, there are some liturgical um, changes and reforms that happen with the Second Vatican Council. So I guess thinking in terms of evangelization, how does, that, how does that work within that matrix of liturgy as well? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if, if that's something that you're passionate about, and that's, um, yeah, that's your worship and your relationship with God. So as far as like you, Thomas, reaching out to um, someone, you know, about your faith and your relationship with God, I think you should totally take him to 
um, you know, if he's, if he's willing and ready for something like that and you feel excited about that. Yeah. yeah I mean, you can don't preemptively call him Jim Bob. Okay. All right, Jim Bob. Jim Bob. Because you know that's got to be his name. Yeah, exactly. Jim Bob. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, and, and take him there. Um, so, uh, yeah, just going back to that, you know, evangelization being person to person. As far as, uh, uh, like, as far as mass is concerned, though, I, I think that's about as far as mass gets evangelical as far as outreach to um those who are not in communion um i mean we we even had a time where you know and if you're an rcia you'd be leaving after liturgy of the word so mm-hmm. um like okay it's it's one thing i, I i've seen this where uh, you know someone's dating someone who isn't catholic and so they bring them to church because they want to get into the habit because they're like, this is important enough to me, you know, whether, uh, whether you share this faith, I want this at least to be something that we do together. Cause I want this to retain, but then also ha- they do have someone there who's able to explain to them, like you'd be able to explain to your friends, like why this is important to you. Um, and, and what's going on. Um, I don't know, like, yeah, mass as being like, you know, depending on the parish, the number of people who can be walking in, I've, I've heard before that in urban areas, it can be, it can be north of 10% of people who are there at mass, you know, are oftentimes just passing through, um, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, <clears throat> would be really shocking if that's true. Um, and something to keep in mind, but like, especially in preaching and so forth, like uh, when I preach, I'm preaching to Catholics and preaching to Catholics who are there um, and, and speaking maybe in such a way, depending if it's a wedding or a funeral and there are lots of non-Catholics there having that in the back of my mind, but we are at liturgy and, and, and this is like, um, this is our public worship of God. And we're not going, you know, this isn't, this isn't where we meet for an interfaith dialogue. Um, okay. Like we, we have a work that we are about. Um, so anyway, yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, I think that's, I think that's really true. Um, obviously like more broadly speaking, the liturgical stuff is, um, uh, at, at the seminary, I, I think so as everywhere. And like, th- I think ultimately this is the hot button thing with the second Vatican council. I think this is the thing where people get a hot under the collar. Yep. Uh, it's like, I think that, um, right. I mean, there's a lot, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's, it's because like, right. You have, you have the, you have the implementation of the ordinary form of the mass, uh, as we have it now. Um, and that caused a lot of consternation and a lot of people, um, became very, very upset. I mean, my, my own family, right. My dad's family, uh, became Eastern right. Catholic over it, right. They became Ruthenian Catholic, uh, because of the changes made. Um, and, and they, they, there was, it was that it was very, very upsetting to my grandparents. Uh, and, um, and so that, so, um, so maybe, maybe there's some irony, uh, in, in, in God's plan to have me become a Latin rite priest, but, um, <laughs> the, um, the, so, so, so it's important then I think we have to be really careful. We have to be really careful because, um, so we have the ordinary form of the mass, we have the extraordinary form of the mass, and then we have this kind of interesting thing where Pope Benedict the 16th 
wanted to talk about the reform of the reform, and he wanted to talk about um, a, con- a, a, to, a continuing a continuing reform of the ordinary form um, by kind of doing what, as you know, and John Paul brought this up earlier, like using the word reform intentionally, right? Um, seeking to reform the ordinary form into what the the council wishes it to be and how that's still part of, and that's still ongoing, right? In, in, in Pope Benedict XVI's mind, just as these other areas are ongoing, so too the mass, so too liturgy. There was, he had this idea that there was this ongoing reform in the hermeneutic of continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that um, Sacristan the Concilium, for example, calls for Gregorian chant to maintain pride of place, right? How many parishes, um, throughout the world is Gregorian chant the norm. I don't know, but I, I don't think it's the majority, but that's explicitly what the council calls for, that Gregorian chant is to maintain pride of place. The organ is to maintain uh, pride of place as the, as the primary instrument, which is to be used in the Latin rite liturgy. Um, so there's all these, so there's all these things that, that are kind of in the, in the air right now. We're living, and so we're living in a moment that's not as stable as we might like in, in liturgy. Um, and so I think that's just something we have to lean into and kind of um, pray with. Um, and I think I think John Paul's comment, you know, more than an hour ago now um, of talking about like not seeing these things in a light of suspicion, but receiving what the church has given us prayerfully uh, and humbly um, and, and, and moving forward in that way. Um, so I think that so I think there's reasons to hope there. Um, uh, as far as liturgy goes. Um, but I, but I do think that I do think that at least in my opinion, the extraordinary form of the Roman rite has a, has a big role to play in the future of the ordinary form of the Roman rite. Uh, and I hope that's the case. So dare, dare we hope on the liturgy, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess what would, um, what would, a, what would like, this is going to sound weird, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I don't mean this to sound um, as if I'm calling the Novus Ordo not like invalid or anything, because because I'm not. Um, obviously, you know, it's, I'm not saying oh, ordinary form does something different than the extraordinary form. No, they both, you know, they both confer the sacraments. Obviously, right? Exactly. Cool. Um, but what would I guess a quote unquote healed mass, a healed liturgy, look like? Mm-hmm. Because um, so many times you see a liturgy and in the back of your head, you're kind of just putting up with it. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not putting up with Jesus. You're obviously not putting up with the sacrament of the Eucharist. You're not putting up with that, but you are putting up with maybe kind of the comfiness of it. You're kind of putting up with the fact that sacrifice is, is, is something in it is like that sacrifice hasn't been promulgated as like the main, like darn part of the whole thing. Um, and you're, you're in the back of your head, you're putting up with it. Now there's obviously other parts of the Latin mass where I'm kind of like, okay, could we just like do the, the reading in English? Like, guys, (laughs) it's like, I'm not going to lose sleep if he (laughs) reading in English or in the vernacular, like that's the part I'm not going to lose sleep over whatever. And like, there, there are, there are other trads who can get upset about that and they can (laughs) go raise their blood pressure over it. I'm going to be completely fine with it. Um, But I guess what would that healed liturgy look like where it still has the semblance, not the semblance still has that connection with the past 
but is still meeting people where they're at now within the church because a lot of people aren't going to be ready to like yeah everyone we're going back in 1962 and i was like what i don't want that um but like what how do you meet people where they're at and have some sort of healed vatican II worship some vatican II liturgy or did i just ask another like million dollar question or something that's um, love a million bucks though <laughs> I built a pretty good church with a million bucks. Um, like there's, there's like, and this is this is not to solve anything, but to beat a dead horse. And it's a dead horse I've been beating yeah. until it's been reincarnated, and then I'll go beat that next reincarnated horse. Yeah. Um, but like the thing that absolutely bleeping annoys the bleeping 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 out of me is people who hate their past, and I see that so much with with like with with catholics when it gets to the liturgy where it's like oh that old stuff like no dude no you're you're talking about your heritage you're talking about your culture you're talking about your past you are talking about everything that brought you here and you talk about in these disparaging terms it's the suicidal i know i've said this before it's the suicidal impact or suicidal instinct that just kills me because, well, that's what a suicidal instinct does. But like in a liturgical historical sense, like it makes absolutely no sense. And this is where like some, some Eastern Orthodox, um, I know David Bentley Hart is a, like, he like critiques and complains about the Latin mass. And that's not to say that there aren't things to complain about. Maybe the culture surrounding the Latin mass, but it's like, you don't know what happened. Like nobody went through and ripped up your liturgy, bro. I'd like to see what would happen. <laughs> dude, my dude, like and your bald spot. Um, but, like, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, sometimes, and I will like, as a person who goes to the Latin mass pretty much every Sunday, Yes, sometimes strads can be obnoxious. Yes, sometimes Taylor Marshall needs to just like chill out and like just just chill, dude, just chill, right? Okay, like that's all true. Um, but there is this sense, and maybe it's going crazy in the other direction, but there's at least not the instinct of everything in the past just sucks because that's what you, the vibe you get from, I wouldn't necessarily, wait, what, did Andrew just bilocate? Yeah, he's oh, best. Wow. All right. He's well, I guess like forget about the whole when he becomes the Pope. It's like when he's <laughs> of the church. <laughs> Power went out again. All right. This would be really funny if this was the thumbnail <laughs> of the video. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew's like biolocated. <laughs> it's just that split second. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I get a third degree, third class relic? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I, I know I've been rambling here, but um, no. what is it? What does a healed liturgy look like? And how do you stop this idiotic view of like everything in the past was dumb and it's back there and it's gone and it's dead now because it's the past and we know better now. Well, I mean, having grown up, like in front Royal. So it was, it was a neat experience having um, probably had extraordinary form twice a week, but it could have been times as many as three times a week Um, and, and serving both masses um, and with priests who um, love the sacrifice, uh, love their people, um, just good parish priests 
and uh, beginning there. Um, I think that, um, yeah, the desire that Pope Benedict spoke of um, will only, you know, we'll only get there once we're having a conversation with people who are, are loving the same things um, and not hating the same things. You know, it's like mm. kind of like kind of like what you're saying, Thomas. It's like, yeah, there's people who, you know, hate their past, and then there's people who hate their like immediate past. You know, um, this is this is true. And uh, you know, you talk to someone who's maybe a, a recent convert or someone who maybe had bad catechesis growing up, this happens where someone will go to college and they'll be, um, am I still on? And, and, and they'll be, they'll be exposed to something beautiful. Maybe they, maybe they go to the extraordinary form for the first time in their life or something and they feel deprived. Right. And so then they start to hate, um, the way that they, you know, prayed to God before going to bed while they grew up. And that's kind of all that they did. And it's like, no, that was like, that was holy, you know, that's, that's how you spoke to God. Um, and, uh, and so beginning there, like right now learning, you know, I'm days away. So learning how to celebrate, um, the Novus Ordo and also how to celebrate the extraordinary form and celebrating both with, you know, reverence, attention and love. Um, and, and having that, uh, that sonship, right. The, um, uh, yeah, piety of like towards, towards mother church. Uh, like I, I have incredible trust. Um, and most of that comes from the fact that, uh, yeah, in my childhood I had really holy Catholic, um, parents, but also priests in life. And, um, and so I, I don't have any kind of personal reasons. A lot of times these discussions do end up kind of, you know, the reason that people have distrust and like, institutions and, 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 and governments and uh, businesses and so forth oftentimes do kind of come back to sometimes a little more personal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing that's preventing me um, from, from loving the sacrifice, you know, as it's been, mm-hmm. as it's been given to me. And, and also that, I mean, it's easier for me uh, when you're, you know, when you're kind of uh, not the, not the brightest person. Um, so it's, it's easier to kind of just receive, uh, humbly, I think, um, than for others who are, you know, far more gifted and, and, and see kind of ways in which they wish that they could make a bigger impact. But just to go back to that kind of personal responsibility, um, it's, it's more like, no, I'm going to, the way that this reform is going to take place is going to be hopefully in two weeks, father John Paul Heisler, you know, celebrating these forms according to what the pastor deems is, um, you know, is, is, is pastorally good for the parish and doing that with reverence, attention, and love. I'll, I'll say one more thing, and that's that at the seminary right now, and I think this is true across the country from the seminarians that I've met at other, um, uh, yeah, just, just places that we meet, is it's it is highly conservative. It is highly traditional. The guys that are like, coming through the pipeline, so to speak, um, do have a very traditional bend, um, more so than I think um, uh, the Catholic population in our country. Um, and so that's, that's going to help as well because there will just be more exposure in that sense to guys who are celebrating the Novus Ordo because that's what they've been 
taught and everything, and also guys who are celebrating the extraordinary form um, out of just, um, uh, yeah, for, for personal reasons and maybe some for pastoral reasons. Um, but I do think that, you know, this is why conversations like this one are so important because what ends up happening, right, is, is you, you find something that you don't like and, and, and you want to throw out anything that's, that's associated with it. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, growing up, it was, it was mass in Latin. It was ad orientum. It was incense. It was all the bells and whistles. You don't know how many people I met who came to church at St. John's in front Royal who thought they had been to a Tridentine mass when they hadn't been. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It happened quite like, yeah, it happens quite a bit. And so yep. I, I think that the fact that even the mass Novus Ordo, as it is, can be celebrated that way, seems to show that there's that there's less like there's there's more of a rupture in, in the common experience of Catholics mm. than there should have been, um, and that it's actually you could you could fool you know e- even even a, you know some of the catechized. You know, you know. No. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I really like what you're saying because that is um, uh, one of my cousins got married um, just a couple of weeks ago and the priest did the Novus Ordo, but he did the Novus Ordo completely in Latin, ad orientem, um, et cetera. And it, it, there was certainly, it, again, it was everything, quote unquote, by the book, um, but it was like ages away from kind of your daily regular uh, parish, not, not to put down the regular parish, but just there was this, this sense of you are entering into a mystery that is something else, as opposed to you are chilling out in the morning with the priest and God bless them, a bunch of church ladies, which I really want to like, one of the, my like deep hopes of getting to heaven is to see how all the old church ladies are rewarded at the end of time for like all <laughs> they did, like in the back of churches, yeah. for, like forever. You, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like I'm just, I'm another like, way is just to get one of them to pray for you. Exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, but like you're, you know, I think you're definitely right that there is, there is a way that the Novus Ordo can be celebrated um, that can almost disguise itself as a Tridentine mass. So is that what you would kind of, I guess, not disguise, but look like it's more within the continuity. So would you argue that that's more of um, how you would truly implement um, the council in some ways in a liturgical setting? Um, is that it does bring to bear more of that continuity, that liturgical continuity between um, the Tridentine, the extraordinary form, and and the ordinary form. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways, obviously, and, um, you know, the form of the council calls, you know, called for, and we, 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 we received the Novus Ordo Mass from the council. So I don't want to divorce, um, uh, divorce that. Um, also Latin is our liturgical language, um, and, and Gregorian chant, uh, the organ as, um, as most proper to our sacred liturgy. Um, and these are all things that, yeah, we continue to be blessed with. There was a document this year. Um, what was the name of that document, Andrew, about the, um, it had to do with, the. Uh, the hymns, the um, well, the USCCB the, came out with yeah, that was a really good yeah, document. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, I can't remember it now, but it was really it was, the, the document was all about yeah, Orthodox theology and our hymns. It was all about right. not using hymns, not singing hymns that uh, obscured theology uh, or, or or had bad theology. Particularly, they were looking at uh, the USCCB was looking at eliminating bad 
bad Eucharistic theology and bad Trinitarian theology where they were the two areas they really wanted to hammer on. And they banned the USCB banned a bunch of hymns. Right. um, Some of them in fairly common usage. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, now how that, how that plays out practically, um, like I, I, like like what you were just saying, you know, a a while ago, Thomas, like, I, I think that, um, the vernacular is, um, is good. Um, I've noticed this in, um, so I, I do a lot of Spanish ministry. I've been doing, um, since coming back from Guatemala, I think, yeah, about half of my homilies are, you know, uh, Spanish apostolates and also in teaching, uh, CCD, uh, or religious education to these kids who are growing up in America, but whose parents, you know, grew up South of Texas. And so they have Spanish in the household. Um, sorry, this will come back to liturgy Spanish in the household and, um, and, and English in school. And it, it was interesting to realize, wait a second, when I speak something to you in English, that's true. Um, you take it as true and you, you know, it's like we're in school but sometimes they wouldn't even make the connection where I'd say it in Spanish. And they're like, Oh, like we're talking Mm. about that thing that I've been saying over and over and over and over again at mass. But we're talking about this in like, like, I guess the part of the part of your brain or whatever, that's like thinks through things like scientifically and reasons and wants to like know more. Um, And so like, you know, and, and having that special care for like, what language that we're using in, in speaking to others. Mm. Um, yeah. In, in celebrating the extraordinary form for a community of Carmelite sisters that I'll be doing in a few weeks. Like I'm going to read the readings as, as we're allowed to in English after having just read them in Latin. Um, and, you know, in, in two months when I'm celebrating at 6:30 AM mass inside the beltway for people who are on their way to work, uh, but are still good enough to, you know, get their butt to church and they're going to, you know, participate in the sacrifice on a Monday morning. Like, yeah, I'm not going to say do all of the readings in Latin and then do all of them in English. So there, there are some things like that that are just, I think, yeah. I think more obvious, you know? Yeah. I like that. I think that's a, I think, I think that, yeah. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what else to, to, to what else we could say um, without kind of, going really, really deep. Uh, but I, I think that, I think John Paul, that, that, that gives a real, um, I think it gives a real framework to look at. And, and, and I keep coming back to, yeah. Uh, I, I do dare to hope that, uh, that, that liturgy is, is, is actually something that is going to be a big part that this is going to, this is going to happen. I do think that Benedict's yeah. vision of the reform of a reform is going to happen. Um, and I, and I think that it's, it's something that so many people seem to care about, so many people in the church seem to be rediscovering our past as you're taught. You talked about Thomas. Um, and in rediscovering our past, I think that people are realizing the beauty that's there, the richness that's there. Yeah. And I think that there's a reason the Holy spirit, I think led Pope Benedict to, to, you know, issue the motu proprio. And I think that there's a reason why those there's so many parishes that are flourishing with extraordinary form masses sitting right alongside ordinary form masses. Um, and, and hopefully, right. I mean, we, you know, we make this joke at the seminary, right. Sometimes we say, yeah, like hopefully in a hundred years, right. Like, uh, nobody will want to learn the extraordinary form because it won't exist. And the ordinary form, it'll just be, 
it'll just be together, right? Everything will just be, we'll have one Roman rite in a hundred years that's beautiful. And that, and that is everything that the second Vatican council uh, kind of hoped it could be the council fathers hoped it could be mm-hmm. um, which is something beautiful from our tradition. So yeah. fully formed within tradition through the fires of purgation out. In yeah. The- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to get poetic or anything, but no, I really think like when talking to you guys about this, it makes me think, I wouldn't as it makes me hopeful. I mean, well, it does. I mean, everything makes me hopeful, but you know, what I mean? you know what I'm saying? I'm not like, I'm like, wow, here we go. This guy is great. But like to really think in terms of, you know, you know, it's easy to be like, Oh, woe is us. Why aren't things better now? Back in the fifties, you know, Bing Crosby was, you know, the priest. Like I don't see Dwayne, the rock Johnson playing a priest anytime. Soon. <laughs> Not like some bad joke or something. Right. Like I don't see that happen anytime sooner. Um, although to be fair, Tom Cruise in mission impossible did ha- was a good looking uh, priest. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Hey, hold on. Why isn't that one up? You guys in the seminary have a wall up of all the different priests in movies. Why isn't that one up for mission impossible? It means that he, he wasn't actually playing a priest. <laughs> he wasn't actually playing a priest. He was playing a he was playing a spy Look, here, disguised as a priest. All right. Well, over there in your idealistic 19th century church, Clark, we can deal <laughs> with the specifics. But here in the 21st century, we got to take our shots where we can get them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would be funny if one of you guys put that up for like April Fools or something. Oh, that would be really good. That would be really good. That should have been our class gift. <laughs> that would have been awesome. <laughs> all right well any last words anyone want to spit out they can be wisdom or they can just be complete blandishments I don't well know. don't you yeah you usually you usually do words of wisdom last we've parting words of wisdom on the lamp and liquor we've podcast moved right? away from that but we've we're bringing it back slowly i don't know i guess if you guys words of wisdom whatever you guys want to say like just, just it's all about it's all about the lord jesus and it's all about our friendship with him and and by because we love him sharing him with others because we love them. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Read the documents and, uh, and, and let a lot of the, um, you know, the, any kind of turmoil that's in your heart um, begin. Yeah. Begin, begin with your conversion. And, uh, and as each of us receives our conversion, as I continue to read these documents, um, letting that first be the guidance and our discussions will then go less and less with, what the council says or this or that, or something that I've heard to something that I've experienced uh, with Jesus Christ from something that I've read and something that I've prayed about because it's personal to me. Yeah. Well, um, these are not, well, maybe there are words, but like uh, next time you go to the airport, think that every single person you bump into, even in their worst state is loved by God. Cause that pops into my head. I'm like, man, that asshole just cut me off. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i mean i'm having a hard time here but i'm, I'm sure the lord can find a way <laughs> anyway, that's right yeah and then get existential about all their salvation including your own um <laughs> all right that's it i gotta get out of here <laughs> cheers cheers jen <laughs>